Yeah, that sounds good. Let's let's how, go. How did you guys meet though? So I had moved to the Bay Area a couple years after graduating college. I moved here from Seattle and moved in with some guys I sort of knew from college. And uh, we decided to throw, I think it might have been a housewarming party or just like some kind of like very early on in my living in the Bay Area mm-hmm. party. And Joey had recently moved there as well. Yeah. And since we went to school together, we knew a bunch of people in common and yeah, I don't know. The first time we were hanging out, I think we were doing Griffiths at Tim's house. house. Oh, that yeah, that's actually... <laughs> oh, that's before my party. I remember that. Oh, that was like the week I moved here. Is this where you'd like to be in your life? And is this what you'd like to be doing? How'd you get here? And where do you hope to go in the future? Most importantly, how are things right now? And what have you learned along the way? This is Bill Ehrlich. Is now a good time? Yeah, so I was born in Lima, Peru... I moved to the U.S. when I was, like, two years old, so I don't remember any of Peru. Grew up in Miami, where a lot of other, like, South American immigrants live. And as a kid, mostly, I was into computers. I was into skateboarding. And my dad bought a computer when I was really young, fortunately. It wasn't, like, a great computer, though, because we just had the same one forever, like a, like a 486 for, like, way too long. So I got really good at hacking it for, like, playing video games or like playing like emulator games just because like my parents wouldn't buy me better video games so I just got obsessed with making my own games or or just doing anything to like have fun and skateboarding was like my other big passion till kind of like middle school started happening and I started realizing I was pretty good at math and also computers and all these other things so I started becoming more academic around then I was always into music like from a really early age I was obsessed with music and but I, I never played anything. I, I never took lessons for anything really growing up. So I always felt like I was bad at things besides math. Programming was one of those things I felt I was bad at too. Because all the people on the internet seemed to be a lot better than me. <laughs> and so I just did anything in high school that I like felt like doing. Like I just took classes. I was an Eagle Scout. That was pretty lame. But <laughs> I also enjoyed the experience of camping. And so I, didn't, I can't say I really had much direction in high school other than I'd liked getting good grades in math and science classes, and I liked reading a lot. And I taught myself guitar. I was in a punk band for a while, for like a year. It was like a weird experience. I, I really liked being in a band. I would email venues like all the time, just telling them like, we're a really professional band, even though we're only 15 years old. We have two guitarists, a drummer, and a bassist, and a singer. I was a singer. I was so bad at guitar, because I taught myself that the guitars in the band didn't let me play. So they were like, well, why don't you just write the words and sing the songs? And I was like, but I don't know how to sing. And they're like, it doesn't matter. Just say whatever you want. So I wrote the words for all the songs and organized practice and booked our shows. So that was great. We would like hang out at bars when we were 15, like didn't even understand like what a bar was. Parents would drive us around to these shows. They would pick us up at like 1 a.m. from these like tiny venues in Miami that had like six people at the venue watching a bunch of 15-year-olds play before their like weird hipster friends would play right after. It was a good time. What was the name of the band? <laughs> the band was named Spiro Agnew because our drummer had a, had a dog named Nixon, and he said if Nixon ever died, he'd get another dog named Spiro Agnew. And I loved like, the political implications of that, and I was like the nerdy guy. So I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's what we rolled with. So that was like my punk rock experience in high school. It was great. I went to a lot of shows, met a lot of weird people, would sometimes play like... We played this stage, the Delano Hotel, where the Beatles had played once, so we felt really special. <laughs> but like, other than that, like it wasn't really much of a show. So yeah, that was like my, my, my biggest art experience in high school, for sure. But I also felt like growing up, art was really expensive. My family didn't have a lot of money, so like, if you want to take piano lessons, like, well, you got to pay 60 bucks a week. Or if you want to do... I, w- I wanted to go to film school for a while, and then I just thought, like, well, what does it cost to make a movie? Well, when do you need a camera? That's like 500 bucks. I didn't like, have one of those. So that kind of stuff always kind of grinded at me when I was a kid, but I was good at math and science, and so my goals quickly aligned to like be some kind of engineer. Yeah. You said your dad got a computer very early. Yeah. Why did he get the computer? Was it because he knew that maybe this would be important for you growing up? Did you have brothers and sisters? I had two older sisters. Okay. So I would say like the one thing my dad and I have a lot in common is that we have a lot of fleeting interests that we get obsessed about for like random periods of time. My dad at times has like tried to teach himself music or at times he's like 
gotten into painting randomly or like baking bread or he, he's like a hobbies guy but he drops him really quick and <laughs> what does he do full-time now he is an elementary school teacher oh, okay at cool. the time he was like a cab driver but he had worked at a radio shack for a while and he knew about computers more than like most people so yeah. in like 91 or something he like spent probably like an unreasonable amount of the money we had on hand as like recent <laughs> people in america on this computer to like download shareware games and like connect it to the internet which like at the time i was like this is rad i don't know <laughs> i don't know if i would have made the same decision in 1991 but like I used the shit out of that computer and it was awesome. Like I learned a lot about computing. I taught myself basic programming at a really young age. And yeah, that's how I got into it. But the cool thing was, cause we couldn't really afford nicer computers. I had to get good at hacking on that one. And that was in retrospect, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was awesome education for me. Totally. Yeah. That's to be exposed to a computer being so young when you don't even realize the implications of why that could be important or valuable. And then also, it was so much more bare bones back then. Yeah. You gained a better understanding of how a computer works, and that hasn't really changed. It's just become more complicated and a little bit maybe less approachable. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not sure if it's less or more approachable these days, but I think being exposed to it at that age... I mean, I, I studied computer science in college, and like, I still find myself like pulling out random things I learned in the eighth grade, like trying to install Linux... And then in college, you studied computer science? Yeah, so I initially wanted to study mechanical engineering. I went to Rice. I got, like, a really randomly applied there because my college counselor, my high school counselor, recommended it. They're really good with financial aid, and so that was, like, it was, like, a game changer for me. I was expecting to go to school, like, locally. Like, we couldn't really afford to go to, like, even, like, the state school because dorms were expensive, but, like, Rice gives out money, and so that was awesome. I pretty much went for free. And I wanted to do mechanical engineering because it seemed more normal than computer science. And I had been on the internet like my whole life. And by the end of high school, I like had come to the conclusion I didn't want to be like the people I spoke to on like video game forums and like Linux forums. Like I didn't like the way they treated each other and they were very rude and they just didn't seem like the kind of people I'd made friends with in high school. And so when I was at school, I like went to the engineering fair and I saw the computer science department and I was like, oh, I really don't want to be involved with that. Like, that looks really bad. <laughs> Everybody's just playing video games all the time and just made me feel uncomfortable. But weirdly enough, the fact that I couldn't afford a nice laptop, I bought a cheap laptop, and then I got installed Linux on it and got really nerdy about that. And then all of a sudden, it's like second semester of my freshman year, all I'm doing is messing with my laptop and programming MATLAB, and I'm, like, not as good at differential equations as I thought it would be. And I'm like, I'm good at programming, and nobody else in this engineering class seems to be good at programming. Why am I not studying computer science? Fuck what other people are like in this class. Like, it's fine. So I didn't make any friends in the computer science class, and but that's what I did, four years of that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I mean, I love computer science, but I think it is unapproach. It's really hard to approach if you don't fit into this white, male, nerdy, antisocial stereotype. It can be really tough to like feel comfortable in those classes, or in, even in the industry. And did you... And did you feel like you were an outsider to that world and you just kind of went on that track, but you didn't integrate? Yeah. I mean, I felt, I felt dumb, to be honest, for four years. I felt like the way people spoke so confidently about like computer things and just the way people were rude to each other, that they were smarter than me and like that I was the only one like who maybe had a study or like work really hard on these problems. So I just didn't really feel like talking to anybody made any sense. Like a couple of different people I partnered with, one was like a really nice uh, girl student. She's like the, one of the few female students in our major. Another one was this really tall, like goofy guy who was like impossibly friendly. And there was the only people I really hung out with in that major. Was that Joey? No. <laughs> no. But yeah, otherwise, other than that, like CS, I don't know, did not feel very friendly. I, I mean, I had professors say mean things to, to me even, and I'm like a dude who pretty much looks white. so. Remember, I had a professor say something like, you gotta choose a text editor, Vim or Emacs, and if you don't pick Emacs, you're a fucking idiot. You'd be like, okay, great. I don't know, that's just computer science for you.
so I am from the, uh, the beautiful heartland of Columbus, Ohio. My parents came here from Singapore. My dad's originally from Taiwan. They came from Singapore in the mid-80s to Columbus, Ohio. So that's where I was born and raised, lived there until I went to college. I'm trying to remember like parts about my, my childhood, kind of what I was interested in. I really liked playing Super Nintendo. I don't know. That was like one of the things. And I think that that's kind of like, that kind of started me along like uh, a love of technology. I really liked playing Mario Kart. I played Mario Kart like all the time. Favorite game? Yeah. I would, say, I would say so. Super Mario Kart is just like one of those all-time classics. I really like racing games, so I wanted to like be a race car driver when I grew up, kind of like every other like five-year-old. So I, I, I come from like a, a fairly, I, I wouldn't say like traditional, I don't, but I, I come from in, in, in a lot of ways like a, a, a fairly common kind of like immigrant family. I was kind of like from a very very early age kind of you know always told you know education is very important stuff like that and my, my parents really just kind of wanted to make sure that I would be set up to kind of like succeed in school so they they put me through kind of like you know different like math and science classes and stuff like that so that I, I kind of I'd, I'd always like from a from a young age it was was into not like into math but like I, I was like pretty good at it and kind of like had from the beginning kind of this image of like kind of like myself as like the the nerdy kid a little bit right was that helpful to have that identification where it's like something you could it was an identity yeah even if it wasn't the superstar it's like still an identity that that might be well well so it was interesting Uh, i i went to school at at a like a predominantly white school and i was kind of like a small like frail like nearly blind asian kid who was like really good at math it was like it's very much like a stereotype you know and so I felt like, uh, in a lot of ways, that was almost like a like a role that I played. I don't know. It's it's, it's a. I'm like very interested because you're like a very cool, accomplished dude. Oh, stop. And <laughs> what is it? I don't think anyone's ever heard, or very rarely, like what it's like to be that stereotype where you are, you know, maybe wearing thick glasses. Yeah. Skinny Asian guy who's good at math. Yeah. What is it like from, from that? Well, I picked on like all the time. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Totally. But um, like, what is there even a pick? Like, what is there to pick on? Yeah, you know, just the, the same kind of stuff that like, you know, kids do to each other. You know, people like pick on kids for having like weird ears or like whatever it is, you know. There's no, there's like no shortage of things for me. So, um, yeah, I was kind of always, uh, but, but, but like, I, I, I've, I've, I've kind of like identified a lot with more of like a, a nerd stereotype. Uh, and I, and I really, really hated it. I was just like, I just want to be normal. Like, leave me alone. Like all yeah. the people. Yeah. So I, I, that's kind of how I kind of got started a lot of this stuff. Like I was always good at like math and science and kind of throughout like middle school and high school and all that stuff. That was what I took really naturally to. The other thing that I... Uh, just kind of gr- growing up, the other thing that I really liked was was music. It just for some reason, it, it always really spoken to me. And it's interesting because I didn't really grow up in like a musical household. My parents didn't really. It's not that they didn't like music, but they just kind of like weren't really up to date on like kind of American culture and stuff like that. So like everything I know, like I kind of got from the radio. And I remember like the first. Because my, 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 my mom would always kind of listen to, like the, like, the soft rock station. It was, like, Shania Twain. I was like, okay, well, I, I knew, like, all the words to, like, all the Shania Twain songs for, like, a really long time. And that's not something that I'm embarrassed about, even a little bit. So those uh, songs are great. Oh, yeah. They're all jams. Like, she, she's full of, like, super jams. But I had a friend when I was growing up who, riding in, like, his dad's car, they always listened to the oldie station. It was like, whoa, like, there's other kinds of music out there. And, like, I... I remember like listening to some of the oldies stuff and I was like, man, wow, this is super cool. I loved Motown growing up. The first CD I bought was like a Motown super hits CD. I like, loved Motown growing up. And that's something that I always latched on to. And kind of as I, as I got older, Columbus, Ohio is fortunate as a fairly small radio market to have an independent radio station. So a lot of radio stations, especially in major markets, are mostly these uh, stations that are owned by, you know, basically like a couple big radio companies. And Columbus, Ohio had like a true kind of like a independent music station and they played a lot of what, what's now like modern rock or like alternative. All of a sudden, you know, kind of when I figured that out in middle school, I was listening to a lot of like Nirvana all the time. I was like, wow, this is so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of when I really started to get the, the hook for, for music stuff. So in high school, it sounds like math, science, and music were kind of things going through. Yeah, mm-hmm, in a lot of ways. Not necessarily 
having the same experience as your parents where they came mm-hmm. over from um, Singapore from mm-hmm. Singapore and you're growing up in America so you're yeah. not always able to maybe relate to them as to like what's going on in the culture really almost never yeah it's, it sounds like you were doing your thing but there weren't a lot of other people who were maybe either doing their thing or doing the same thing yeah did that change in college yeah, totally. So I feel like I, I grew up uh, feeling very isolated in a certain way. My parents, they're they're not like Philistines or anything, but like they, you know, they, they kind of, they come from a different place and it's like a very foreign thing. So, you know, I, I'd always like kind of love music growing up and they're like, hey, listen, kid, if you want to make it in America, like put your head down and study, you know, it's like, and, and I don't want to generalize and I don't want to like say anything, but like, you know, a lot of Asian families, you know, they, they push their kids towards places where you can be a professional, right? And I think a lot of that re- extends from, um, you know their experiences immigrating to America, where a lot of times they're not taken seriously, especially times when like you know people have like language barriers and stuff like that. There's kind of this this mindset that if you're in a technical field, technical fields are very black and white, right? You're either right or you're wrong. Especially areas like medicine, uh, engineering. It's like it's hard. It's a lot easier, like a lot of Asian immigrants are, are skilled in, in some sort of like technical discipline like that. And that's how a lot of people like get visas to come over to America. And, and, and so there's this, this kind of prevailing wisdom that says, you know, if you're in one of these fields, there's right and there's wrong, there's no in between. So it's a lot easier to be taken seriously there. And I think that gets a, a lot of people to kind of push their kids through these disciplines. Like if you want to be respected, if you want to be taken seriously, if you don't want people to kind of write you off on, on, on the face, of you know of you and the way you look and the way you talk you know going to one of these technical disciplines so that's why I kind of like pushed math and science a lot and uh, and like I, I happen to like it I liked it a lot I mean a lot of people I know kind of got pushed the same way and, and had no interest or anything like that and that was that was a that, that's a that's a pretty tough story as well but but yeah so I, I, I happen to like it I had a great physics teacher in high school and so that's kind of like what led me in to, to kind of go the route that I did um, yeah, once I got to college, when I went to go uh, like visit colleges, Rice has this really great non-commercial radio station, KTRU, KTRU. It's, it's, uh, it has different call letters now. That's an entirely different story. Um, but I went there and I visited and I was like, wow, like it's, you know, there's, there's tons of music everywhere. And the people wrote like fuck words on the walls and stuff like that. It's like, wow, this is kind of cool. Uh, and so, yeah, and so like that's kind of where I started to, to find people uh, almost for the first time that kind of had similar interests to me. So, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of, of me kind of like finding similar people. Did you also do computer science in college? I didn't. So I had a great physics teacher in high school, and uh, she was always like, yes, yes, go study physics. And, and I was like, I was not smart enough to study pure physics. So I, so I studied mechanical engineering. I really liked, again, this is where like the race car driver thing comes in. I loved cars, I loved planes, I loved things that in general like go fast. So, so that's why I studied mechanical engineering and I would say like almost all of that was because of like this, this great teacher I had in high school. And I, I'd always like liked computers, but I never really had gotten into them until college. We had like, we had computers growing up at home, but it was always like, this is the family computer, like don't mess up the family computer because if you mess it up I have no idea how to fix it right (laughs) like that kind of thing so just like do your schoolwork stay off the internet don't touch the computer (laughs) when I got to college I I took a like introduction to like engineering computation class which is where I learned MATLAB and that was my first time kind of really programming I was like hey I can do this like this is this is stuff that that makes a lot of sense to me that kind of set this the stage for a later career switch over into software related things um but yeah so I studied mechanical engineering in college after going to school in Houston and being a mechanical engineer naturally a lot of the available jobs for mechanical engineers are uh related to oil and gas and that was just something that I really had like no interest in at all <laughs> San Francisco right away? Uh, no, so I, I, I'm, I'm a year older than Joey, so mm-hmm. I graduated in 2011, and Microsoft was the tech company that recruited most heavily at Rice, and I felt really complicated <laughs> about working for Microsoft, because I was like a huge Linux enthusiast, but, you know, they send you a salary offer, and like, 
you know, I, I like money to me was a big deal my whole life. And suddenly I see this like letter that's offering me more money than my parents make combined. And I was just like, holy shit. All right, cool. I know about Seattle. I like listened to a lot of grunge growing up. It's such a stupid statement to make. And then, you know, as soon as you step into Seattle, you never say that again. You know, like, <laughs> that's like so embarrassing. But I was like, I love Nirvana. Like, I know Soundgarden. I know, like, all these bands. <laughs> I like the Melvins, even. I'm that cool. I read it on Wikipedia. But, like, I, so I go to Seattle and I get there and I'm just like, what the fuck? This is the opposite of, like, everything I've ever known. One, I'm working at a company that employs, like, 100,000 people and, like, they're associated, like, other companies, I don't know, probably like 200,000 people in this metro region. It's beautiful. It has the opposite weather of Miami. This company's really boring, but it gives everybody money. And then Seattle is like this place where people seem to just not have jobs or people just seem to be like either really boring and worked for Microsoft, which was me when I got there, or they're like covered in tattoos. They can spout off poetry while giving you a latte. There's so much music everywhere. I, I was like stumbling distance from tons of music venues, weird art. And I started making friends with like real hipsters, not just the ones I went to college with that people probably called me. I was just like, what is going on here? There's so much creativity and how do all these mysterious people seem to have really nice guitars and really dirty clothes and like exist in this somewhat expensive city, way more expensive than Houston or Miami. It was very confusing to me and my job was so boring. And so that's kind of when I started thinking like, nothing really makes sense. How can you make so much money doing nothing? Like I, I literally did nothing most days. I read a lot of news. I listened to a lot of music. I got even nerdier about music. I talked to my boss every once in a while and I would leave at four and it just didn't matter. Everything was on track. I got rated performs well <laughs> my first year there. So I left, joined a startup. The startup was really cool. And I also in this time I started buying guitar stuff. I started playing a lot of music by myself mostly. I, I had in college a little bit, but it was always like hidden in my dorm. I just shred on my guitar I bought with like savings from some random summer internship. And everything is really artsy in Seattle. So you end up like kind of accidentally like going to a lot of weird underground shows or things like that without necessarily being cool. People are also not that friendly in Seattle. So that was also like the first time since Rice wasn't an art school, everybody who was an artist at Rice was still pretty nice. But like in Seattle, there's like, a lot of people who just think you're lame because you look like you're in the tech industry or maybe you're not wearing the right type of denim. So it's, it feels really unfriendly, even though like my interests were kind of everywhere. After working at a startup, we ended up getting acquired by LinkedIn, sort of. And that's how I ended up in the Bay Area. But at that point, I was pretty committed to like not just having a job and just like doing something outside my job that was more interesting. And that meant music or other stuff and Seattle definitely opened that up in me I just realized people don't just stop being weird after high school <laughs> you can you can be weird your whole life which is great Joey what was your path out of college to the Bay Area yeah so I didn't want to do oil and gas so I went into uh, this consulting job so I was doing kind of like healthcare consulting for a while basically helping uh, hospitals like run more efficiently and you had um, graduated with mechanical engineering? I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree. And that was no that was not being used or was no. it being used in the consulting? Pretty much not at all. No, definitely not at all. I also really wanted to go um, into aerospace if I could, but at that time the aerospace industry was I think taking a bit of a, a downturn. Yeah, so I did I did this consulting job for a while and then I kind of got tired of making like PowerPoint slides and it was like, you know, I really like programming, like I want to I want to do like more technical things again. I want to do engineering. So I ended up doing like one of those uh, programming schools out here, and so like I was like, okay, let's move to the Bay Area. And at the same time, like my girlfriend had gotten a job out here too, so it was like, okay, cool, like we'll we'll move out here. Your consulting gig was back in Houston. So this is actually in New York. Yeah. Oh, so I moved to New York. York right after right after graduation, and so like I, I moved out here. I did like a programming school Which for three one? months. Uh, it was a school called Hack Reactor. Okay. Mm hmm. They're they're great. They do awesome awesome work. But yeah, so I went to school for three months. And then after that was kind of doing some independent contracting for a while and sort of helping them out with some, just kind of with some stuff. So like I was helping them like kind of run interviews for a while. Uh, at Hack Reactor? At Hack, Hack, Hack Reactor. So they had this like residency program, which I did for a while. And then I went and got a job. So I joined a small company, like a small database company doing user experience and front end work. So for a while it was just programming. Then I started doing more design stuff. Now I do about a 50-50 split of interaction design and like front-end software engineering. At this database company? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Sweet. Yeah. 
So you guys both wound up here in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. are both working in tech, but as programmers. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious how you guys met up and then how your interests kind of came together. Yeah. So like Rice is a weird little school. I wouldn't say it's that weird. It's not Reed College, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's pretty it's small and weird. people yeah. are kind of strange. And like one thing that it really has going for it so it's very easy for like you to kind of have an idea of like who everybody else is on campus. You don't necessarily know everyone, but like you almost know every single name. And so if you graduate Rice and you move to some city where you might not know that many people, it would be very easy to find yourself amongst other graduates of Rice. You'll just like ask anybody, do you know anybody who lives there? And they'll like welcome you with open arms, at least for the first month that you know them. <laughs> and then you find out of whether or not you'll actually be friends. But it's like fantastic. The same thing happened to me in Seattle. <clears throat> In Seattle, I just like asked people, "Do you know anybody in Seattle?" And they'd be like, "Oh yeah, my uh, you know my friend that you've never met who also goes to school here. He's moving there next month." And then you know, lo and behold, they're like one of my best friends in Seattle. So in San Francisco, it was sort of the same thing. Everybody just kind of gelled together really quickly. And so we did know this guy Tim in common, mm -hmm. and Tim was, I don't know, how would you describe Tim? Tim is the internet, I would say. <laughs> I think he, I think like the internet runs through him. I think you plug like a, a line into him and then the internet comes out. Tim, Tim's like a really energetic iconoclast. I don't know. He's like, just like a really energetic, crazy dude. At Rice, he was really involved in improv and all this stuff. Then he moved to San Francisco and he just got way weirder. He got like kind of goth. He got really political. He got really fun. <laughs> now in Austin, he organizes like wrestling events He's just a super weird guy and really scatterbrained, so he's awesome to talk to. And so if he lets you know about something to do, back at least when he was living in San Francisco still, you just want to attend. And so Joey and I met up at a My Bloody Valentine show because of him. Mm -hmm. And we had already sort of known who each other were, but we weren't really friends. But like in that room, I, we had a lot of common friends. I remember meeting Siggy once in college, and at the time, I was still extremely upset about... LeBron leaving Cleveland to go to Miami and being from Ohio, you know, it was like the one time in like an Ohio sports team like got good and then like promptly had like the star player, like the best person to come along and like, you know, in most people's lifetimes, like go to Miami. So, I talked to him once and I was like, oh, you're from Miami? And then just like kind of like in the back of my mind, I was like, God damn it, you know, so, <laughs> it was like, and I was like, I'm never talking to So unlike again. Joey, I, I don't really pay attention to sports. I don't really care about sports, but I really find a lot of pride in where I'm from. And so when LeBron started playing for Miami, I was suddenly a huge NBA fan for about the time LeBron was playing in Miami, which is like the thing that people are most critical about LeBron's time in Miami, but I, I just lived that and I didn't mind. It was a good time to be <laughs> from Miami, I guess. LeBron went back to Cleveland, so it was, all, it was all fine in the end. Moving to the Bay Area to work in the tech industry is... I don't know. It's a lot. There's a lot more to it. And so, like, Joey and I became friends, like, in the midst of our adjustment to, like, mm -hmm. okay, we live in Silicon Valley. Do you even call it Silicon Valley? Is that, like, a <laughs> corny thing to do? And, like, I thought it was going to be a corny thing to do, but it's not the Bay Area. It is Silicon Valley when you're living in the tech industry. There's this total layer of, like, existence that, like, it, it just goes so much deeper. Like, when somebody tells me, like, oh, you live in San Francisco, and I'm like, yeah, well, I sleep there. But, like, really, especially when I was commuting to the South Bay, I was, like, I live in, like, this mindset of Silicon Valley. And so I think Joey and I became friends, like, while, like, attempting to adjust to this weird reality that we were now in, which yeah. was, like, living in Seattle, like, tech industry's big there, but there's a lot of different ideas going on there. And, you know, in New York, I'm sure you felt the same way. There was some, like, relief, but not really here. <laughs> come together with this idea for the conference what was this born out of and kind of how did it all come together uh, like i i remember siggy had this idea of big data it was like the thing that he always talked about it was like big data it's like big data but data and it's basically it's just dumb everything is gonna be big data someday uh and i was like yeah okay that, that, that's, that's pretty funny that makes sense to give people a little bit of like context can you explain what dada 
would be normally before we like yeah. reappropriated into. So yeah. I, I can sort of explain like okay, so I'm not an art history major. I did not study art history. I'm like a Wikipedia fanatic. Jo- Joey's girlfriend would definitely call me out on this as someone who studied art. She's like, I, I I study a lot of things. I tend to think I know what I'm talking about and maybe misunderstand them and put them in my own context. So the way I understood Dadaism at this point, which I'm pretty sure Christine at some point has corrected me on this, was that like Dadaism was born out of this sort of idea that like enlightenment ideas and technological progress, Dadaism was born like right around the time of World War One, and it was like, wow, we've done so many like things as human society, we've developed so much and like really we've gotten nowhere. Like we've just gotten really good at killing each other even for all the innovations we've made in like ways of thinking and doing things. So Dadaism was sort of this like rejection of the normal ways of doing art, like a lot of like very absurd art or like collages as art or just like strange things like taking a photograph of a toilet and calling it a piece of art and just sort of like flipping all like human advancement on its head. But not not in like a mean way, just in sort of this nonsensical way. And it was like really freeing to maybe see some things that can be construed as progress is not really progress, it's just like motion. Anyways, and, and, and like this is maybe like my like secondhand understanding of it as well. Like I'm also not an art history major, but like my understanding is that art at the time of like World War One in that era was like very much like focused on like technical ability and like oh um, you know this person has so much talent for doing things like this way and 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 then like the reaction to that was literally like to just take a urinal and put it on a stand and call it art, right? And so, like, then it was like, very much in, in that way, kind of like a rejection of all that stuff, like, very much like an anti-art. Is the Duchamp fountain where it's a urinal as a serious piece of art, that's kind of the epitome of this? Yeah, I'd say that's, that's like, very much, like, the like the canonical, like, Dadaist piece. I, I don't know if it was the first one. It would be the Google Doodle of Dadaism. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's true. That's how um, I feel about it. Yeah. So big data is a is like a pun I came up with one day at work <laughs> because okay, so I had been at the startup in Seattle. We were going out of business, sucked, and the month that we were going out of business, so we got aqua hired. Aqua is like already a silly term, but it's a thing. Silicon Wait, Valley. You guys got acquired. Well, aqua hired. So that's when a company <laughs> buys your company. Okay, so this is something different. They didn't buy our business. They just bought our people, which was like they acquired the team because we were good at certain technologies. And it just made sense to hire a group of people who already got along together and who were good at certain things that LinkedIn was investing in. So your company wasn't acquired because they wanted the company. The company was acquired because they wanted the people. And there's this term out there. Yeah. That's aqua hired. Aqua hired. It's like during this time of weird uncertainty when we were going out of business, we kept thinking of like ideas to pivot to, but they quickly turned into like, what are the worst startup ideas? And that eventually like rolled into like once I got to the Bay Area and I had been already thinking about really bad, terrible startup ideas for a long time. It was like, man, everybody talks about how useful big data is, but all we're doing is like advertising to people. And that's not really that useful. Or like all these other like, strange things the tech industry was doing that didn't seem very useful or were very complicated maybe judged on their complexity or how much money they could raise but like not really on whether or not it was advancing society so big data was sort of like this it was like kind of a half criticism of the tech industry but i'm also part of the tech industry so i wasn't totally rejecting it but it was sort of like okay yeah you could go home and spend all night working on a new ad platform and then write a press release saying you're changing the world but you're not changing the world so like, why not just go home and work on a piece of technology that's actively not useful and say you're changing the world? Like, like why not make the equivalent of a urinal on a stand and then like raise a million dollars for it? Or, and so that was, that was sort of the joke. And then we started throwing around more and more like crazy ideas around this. Well, at the same time, it's like technology has a lot of potential to help people, right? It has the potential to completely redefine the ways in which we operate as humans in the way that, that like society can function and you know moving out here and like finding ourselves in the bay area and then being like okay this company just raised 30 million dollars to be a, a search engine for animated gifs it's like what are we really doing with all this you know with with like our technological 
capabilities you know like what are we you know like we like we can we can use technology for like cooler things than this right and so big data like just became this joke like uh i think the yo app came out like right <laughs> around the time i was really like I, I so I, I have these like things I call them semesters in my life where I get really excited by an idea, can't stop talking about it. Usually the length of a semester and it really annoys anybody I'm dating or my friends. But sometimes it, it catches on. And Big Data was one of these things I just couldn't stop talking about the whole summer, and or maybe in the spring too. And so when Yo came out, a bunch of different people texted me and messaged me WhatsApp, you know whatever myriad. Messaging services you want, but they were like, Siggy, is this you? Did you start Yo? Did you raise a million dollars? This is the most big data thing ever. And I was like, oh man, it happened. Like the singularity happened. Like big data <laughs> is real. Like somebody made an app called Yo, which is like, I feel like we talked about like empty text messages before as like potential ideas. So that was like when it became clear that there was like some legs to this idea. So it definitely was born out of like frustration with like, you move to the Bay Area, you think you're going to change the world, and you're realizing, well, changing the world is kind of a weird way to talk about what you're doing. And, and so it was born out of this frustration, but it was also really freeing to start thinking about things in this context of like, well, what doesn't make sense? Or like, it's okay that things don't make sense. And then it, it, it went from like this frustrating thing to like this really like cool positive thing where we just started like programming things that didn't make any sense or like building dumb art projects. I think I wrote like a Python script that just like made a book of 500 pages with like random like chapters that were all one word and so i would say like python like make the word mobile into a 500 page book with 12 chapters and then i'll make a pdf of it and just like email it to my friend and i was like that's like it was really fun so all of a sudden like big data went from like negative to like well this is great like everybody should just make pointless things it's so fun and, and like a lot of this, <laughs> like the tech industry is already so absurd like it is absurd like yeah. there's there's people out here making things that are absurd, but like maybe they're serious while they're doing it. And so it's like, the tech industry is already absurd. Let's just be absurd and be like very upfront about being absurd. And that way, you know, we can just like ditch all the pretense and be like, okay, we're making dumb things. Who cares? You know? And, and we're not going to say like, you know, we're changing the world with it or anything, but we can make absurd things because it's fun and because creation is an act of joy in a lot of ways. Right. And, and so, like, we might as well have some fun. Like, by the end of the summer, this is, I guess it was 2014? I think by the end of the summer, like, things had kind of circled around with this idea that we'd been throwing around. I remember just one day I, like, looked up what the definition of technology was. <laughs> and it turns out, like, the root word is, is, like, this Greek word, techni, which means skill or art or, like, cunning, cunning. right? Mm -hmm. Cunning. And it was like, whoa, that's exactly, when I think about technology... A lot of us have this focus on like the technical aspect of it, but we forget that there's like an art to it or that art itself is technology. And they're mm -hmm. all actually rooted in, this, in the same word, right? Like in Greek, all those words are interchangeable. And once we started thinking like, well, what does big data mean? How do we explain it? Like I tried to write this, well, I did write this manifesto about it. And part of it was that definition, like big data is like your ticket to just say like, everything is kind of silly, but that doesn't mean it's not serious, but that doesn't mean serious things aren't silly. And it's just like this world of contradictions and that you can do art with the technology you make or like just because you're a technologist doesn't mean you don't do art. And so I think also this was probably maybe at the height of a lot of angry writings in San Francisco media about techies ruining the culture of the Bay Area. And that, that also didn't feel good to us. It was, it was really confusing. Like, why should these two groups supposedly be so opposed to each other? Some techies do art. Actually, a lot of tech people do art and a lot of artists use technology and mm -hmm. in fact like we're not all that different like there is this blurring of the people who do big data every day and the people who do big data <laughs> every day like or we're, we're like actually all hanging out here in the same place and yeah i guess it snowballed from a joke into this sort of mindset of we're all creative tinkerers in some way and like you don't really have to worry if it's if you're an engineer and you're trying to make some art, like you're still allowed to make some art, nobody should like exclude you from that and vice versa. You're an artist, you can, you're allowed to do technology stuff. In fact, painting is technology, like everything is technology. Yeah, and that's kind of what it turned into. Yeah, and then like from my background, like I had not been, you know, like super into computers growing up. And so it was like, you know, you put me, if you want to put me in a box now, sure you can say like, oh, this person's a programmer or whatever, but 
I didn't really pick up on that stuff until later in life, right? Like I, I kind of like picked that up as I as I went along. So it's like these groups aren't mutually exclusive at all. There is a lot of common ground. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to, you know, see exactly how much common ground there is. second year this is the second year what's kind of the thesis of the conference or the goal kind of like the elevator pitch to use a silicon valley term of the conference <laughs> i would say it's like a light-hearted non or anti-hackathon almost there's definitely plenty of people programming but like the goal is not really to program it's to spend the weekend learning something new and exploring something new and using like this aesthetic of think big, <laughs> like the tech industry encourages you to do, but like also think absurd. You know, maybe maybe somebody who's never programmed before is going to learn how to make like a weird JavaScript drawing that reacts to music. That happened last year, which is pretty cool. Or maybe somebody who like spends all day programming is just going to paint comics on uh, on cardboard or film a video. Or people with all kinds of skill sets. People made clothes. They made. Um, somebody 3D printed a dildo. Yeah. There was there was welding going on. It was really interesting. And, in, in like, I think you can look at it from a very, you know, traditional sense where, like, everybody kind of goes to their day job and they are an ex, a programmer, an engineer, an artist, a, you know, financial analyst or, you know, a barista or whatever, right? Um, but then everybody has, like, all these things that are also, like, not work, right? All these people have these things that these other, you know, skills or weird talents. And, and we wanted to bring that all together. And, and, and I think that, like, last year we saw a lot of things where it wouldn't have happened unless you brought together kind of a bunch of these people with, with different interests and different ideas. And, like, we never would have, you know, come – like, I, there's, there's people who, who made an internet-enabled dildo, right? It was, like – you they created a dildo from scratch they took like plastic molding they heated it up they rolled it into the shape of a dildo then they got people who knew electronics to um you know hook it up to uh you know, like basically so hook they hooked up a bunch of motors they hooked that up to um, a little hardware chip that was taking streaming data from a an eeg headband that would read your brain waves and it's like all these like technical and like artistic disciplines came together to make something that was both totally absurd and also like novel in a lot of ways and interesting and fun and 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 so that's like we, we want to like bring that out of everybody that weird skill or like that weird hobby that they've been nurturing for a long time or, or whatever it is and so yeah we just want to we want to give that a, a chance to to interact with all the other things in like the space of possibility the conference goal is like this sort of aimlessness actually we live in a culture in the bay area especially where you can consume a lot or there's this pressure to really create like if you didn't raise a hundred million dollars for your startup you're not really crushing it bro but yeah, not just create like yeah. change the world like you yeah. have to put a dent in the universe yeah. like you, you're and not so gonna, like you're gonna if you're gonna like you know start a startup or whatever and it's yeah. not gonna be a billion dollar company don't why why even yeah, bother if you're not like, going to shoot for the stars why bother right why yeah like don't try? don't do anything like right? if your gift keyboard isn't gonna gonna like turn into a self-driving car then just like <laughs> go home dude and like that that's like part of the mentality and like but that, that mentality it's like really obvious if you're like in you know business you know world a little bit but it's also like i don't know you go to a show and like fanagrams playing on stage and you're just like holy shit man they're so good at music maybe I'll just never play my guitar again. And that's like not really the feeling you should have either, right? And so the aimlessness of our conference is kind of intended to just like encourage people to try things like, okay, make some music, make a song, paint something, like don't even sweat it. None of it has to change the world. And in fact, we just want people to like show up and just be comfortable in this like sort of amateurish confusion. And then the other thing that's important is as an engineer, one of the most valuable things 
in engineering, and I'm starting to learn this now as I get more into music, is mentorship is really important, right? Like learning from somebody who is better at you than something should not be intimidating the way it's described in like that movie Whiplash. Like the reality is most teachers that have good students just like show them the ropes and teach them and encourage them. And part of Dotaconf, the other half of it, like you should just do whatever you feel like doing here is you should also teach somebody to do something that you don't know how to do. And that's why we really try to like bring a diverse group of people because like you might talk to a painter who's really good at selecting colors and you just might be good at writing JavaScript. Maybe you guys like switch tasks for a little bit. You might create something really novel and interesting at the intersection of your two skill sets and actually like teach each other. You know, this person who's never programmed before might come away being like, well, I know how to make art on my computer now. Like I didn't know how to make art on my computer last week. And you might come out of it saying, wow, I can do something different. Like Joey, you've been taking drawing classes, right? Mm -hmm. The last few months. Yeah. Like, I don't know, if, is that something you thought you'd be good at or like could learn? I was always, I was like terrible at art as a kid. And I think a lot of it was just this idea of like, oh, this isn't good. Or like, you made this thing and look how you messed up the face in like four ways. And I kind of always thought, no, like I'm, I'm just bad at art. I'm not an art person. I'm a math and science guy, right? That's, those are the things I do. But it turns out, I mean, it's like no one, no one like starts as an expert. And that was a thing that I think that, that I had to realize. There's a great quote from Adventure Time, which I love. It says, uh, sucking at something is the first step towards being sort of good at something, right? But you have, to, you have to start by sucking at something. You have to start as a beginner. And that's the thing that people don't tell you, right? You, and, and like what we celebrate in a culture are like prodigies, right? We celebrate people who at the age of eight can, you know, play a piano concert in front of like at Carnegie Hall or, you know, like, the, like a 12 year old who wrote a search engine or whatever it is, right? We celebrate these prodigies and we, and we like to believe in the myth that like these people were just kind of born with this like innate talent um, that they were born with some sort of, you know, magical gift that if you just don't have, you just don't have, and why bother, right? Why do you think we celebrate that? Uh, well, it's an interesting story, right? And I think we like to, as, as humans, I think we like to believe that we can be great, right? And, but I think it gets presented to us in, in a way that's, that's, that's kind of counterproductive, right? So, like, in the case of a child prodigy, do you, do you see maybe, like, the, you know, the hundreds and thousands of hours that, you know, maybe that, that kid has, like, put into practicing the piano or whatever it is like no you don't you, what you see at the end of it is like oh that kid's eight how can he be so good at piano well you know like there is there's a story behind there it's like people talk about overnight successes like well what you don't see is like all the work that went behind that, that overnight success that overnight success was not overnight like that person had to start from somewhere right that person had to start as a beginner everyone starts as a beginner yeah i'm not, I'm not sure who benefits more from this uh like myth whether it's the super talented, super skilled person who is maintaining this myth of I'm an overnight success, I just like knew it from birth, or if it's the people who are saying, well, I'm not even gonna bother, you know? And well, like, I don't, I don't know who like perpetuates this more, maybe it's just everybody, but like both those philosophies are wrong. Like, you know, you'll, if you read like an interview with certain musicians, for example, they'll be like, dude, I practice so much. And some will just like say nothing about their methods. And there's some people who like, don't give a shit if they never get better at guitar. They'll still play every day, and that's really cool. It's better than yeah. saying like, being a, you know, being at a concert, and being like, well, that's cool. I'm just never gonna try. Yeah, and it's 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 harmful to the people who are like quote unquote gifted as well too, right? I, I remember mm -hmm. reading a, a study that said cheapens you know, what they've practiced for. Not just that, but also like, you know, when 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 people are kind of told this this whole time, oh, like you're a prodigy or you're some sort of genius. It's like when you get to any like when those people then get to some sort of difficulty, it's like they don't want. Like, they have this idea in their head, like, oh, I'm a genius. I'm supposed to be able to do this thing, right? Uh, and because I can't do this thing, maybe I'm not as much of a genius as people thought I was, right? And so, like, that, that also is very toxic to those people. Because then you, you get in your head that it's like, well, I'm supposed to be good at this. I'm not good at this. What's going on? Like, what's happening? Like, what's happening to me? Am I, you know, not as good as people have been saying that I am? So it, it's damaging, really, to, to everybody. I remember growing up, people used to call me a computer prodigy. I could fix a computer, I could build computers, I could install Linux. And then when I got to college, I was suddenly in these classes where I was like, whoa, I suck actually, like I'm terrible. Like I'm like a useless computer person. Like all these kids, like who grew up in, I don't know, California or something are like actually good at this. I'm like an idiot. And like, that's not true. I just didn't have as much exposure as they did. It just took a lot of diligent studying in college to really get me to where I am now, where I have like a professional computer programmer. But for some reason, because it's a technical skill, like computer programming, to me, I always felt like, well, even though I feel like I suck at this, I can make it. 
but like why should I not feel that way about art and like a lot of people actually feel the flip side they're like I'm just not a math person I'll never understand math or like computers or Excel spreadsheets and that's not true everybody's capable with the right amount of work those are kind of our feelings about like learning really like a lot of big data is about just learn <laughs> yeah I, I think that you really did just kind of sum it up there where it is about learning but learning through not being intimidated when you frame it as like let's make something nonsensical yeah for whatever reason it frees people to say let me try exactly yeah. and that's the thing that we did i think that's really what's brilliant that's the thing that we didn't 100 percent realize going into it last year but like kind of coming out of it last year we we really saw it the absurdity angle is is really just a license to to go wild right and it's like Make, we, we, we encourage people, hey, make something dumb. In fact, we want you to make something super, super dumb, right? And, and the reason that we do that is, one, because it's hilarious. And two, you know, if you try to make a dumb thing and you do well, okay, congratulations, you made a dumb thing. Great, you did it. And it but if you, if you completely mess it up, then who cares because it was going to be dumb anyway. Or you can even look at it and say, it's even dumber than I thought it was gonna be. Look how good of a job I did, right? And so when you, when, when you, when you put it in that kind of perspective, no matter what you do when you set out to do the thing, no matter what the outcome is, it's fine, it's great even. And that's how you get started, right? Because if, if, you, if you try to you know, learn this new skill and at the end of you know, the weekend or whatever, you, you, you think in your head, man, I gotta be a master at this, then you, know, you start to get nervous, you start to get self-doubt. When things start going badly, it's like, man, I'm not cut out for this, right? But when you filter it through the absurdity lens, when things start going badly, oh, this is great. You know, like, wow, I wonder how much more badly things can start going. And then things get funny. But then at the end of the, at the, end of the day, you realize, hey, I kind of learned something here. I can just keep doing this, right? We thought it was just kind of funny at first, the absurdity part, like the data part of big data and data conf. But it turns out that's actually, in my mind, that's one of the, that's one of the key elements. I think that's, that's, that's really kind of the, the, the secret piece of this whole thing is is the license to do something dumb. Yeah, it just doesn't have to be spectacular even, you know? Like, there's a lot of art events where, like, you know, people go through these extreme lengths to build these awesome things, and that's great. Like, those are really cool too, but we're kind of shooting for just, just do something super silly and, like, feel good about it regardless of what it turns into. So here's, here's my question, kind of go, to go off of what you said. What is the difference, ultimately, between making something smart and making something dumb? Like, if you had a conference of people, it would be mu probably be much harder to get them there in the first place. But it was like, we want you to come here and, and make something smart, make your best work. Would even different things come out? Or would it be the same things, and then you're just having a lot more fun when it's within the context of... Well, I think you, you do have that, right? Like you have the, I think I think hackathons definitely like a few years ago were people now understand that a hackathon is is really just a bunch of like hungry college students like, coding for hours. <laughs> but like when I was finishing college, it was like this phenomenon that like it'll just take three days, bro, and you can start a company too. Yeah, and we'll have VCs waiting for you yeah. on the other end, and yeah. and like there's so much seriousness, you know. There's these angel investors or whatever. I don't know some guy who made money with real estate like about to like judging your company and deciding whether or not the company you just built in the last 48 hours with you and your friend who like maybe just finished school is going to get a bunch of money to start a company and it has a huge air of seriousness you know there's like organizations that organize hackathons all over the world it's, it's serious and very self-important too it's like yeah. you know in these in just three days you can change the world right and it's like yeah and so like when you when you when you tell everybody come out and like show us your, your, your best and put your absolute best foot forward, it's kind of a toxic environment, right? You get, that's when you get people you know, starting to treat each other badly, and that's when you get people talking shit and, 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 yeah. and being like mean the, to each other. There's and, a controversy, like, I don't know, about a year ago at like some big company's hackathon where the top team won this big money prize, and they actually been working on it for like months before. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, like, is, is that cheating? Like, what's the deal? Like, I, at .conf, like... Am I going to be in trouble for working on my dumb ideas ahead of time? No. <laughs> well, because nobody wins .conf. Yeah. And you're, like, literally trying to do something dumb. Like, if you get on stage and, like, you just, you're, like, you know, you just, like, disappear. 
into nothing, that would like get a lot of applause. Dot com. That would be really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> like, but, but, but at the same time, we want like, you to come in and try something new, right? And yeah. get outside your comfort zone. And and you know, if you've been working on this project for a long time, you know, you 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 have probably already built that skill set up to to getting. To making that project and, and I think a lot of the the fun of Dataconf is is coming in being open to these new disciplines and being open to these new ideas and then just taking something and being like okay well maybe I had this idea let's just take a total left turn and see what happens right I'm I'm really excited I think it's brilliant and I think it frees people in a very unexpected way to allow them to not only learn things in a better environment but also try things that they maybe would try anyways, even if we asked for their best ideas. So I'm, I'm totally into it. Yeah, and it's, a, it's something we, we want people that, that, to, you know, scratch that itch that they, they've been wanting to scratch, you know, and, and maybe they, they didn't know who to ask or kind of where to start, uh, and we want Dotacomp to be a place where, where that's, that's possible, where you can say, yes, I can, I can do that, you know, I can, I can try it. What I, what I really like about the reception of Dotaconf is that, like, it's sort of making fun of the tech industry, but we're not really like against it. We're all in it, you know. I brought it up at work. People are like, "That sounds great. I'd love to come." You know, people who are like managers and like run teams <laughs> in this tech company, and also like people who are just like full blown like artists. Like they're just like, "That sounds cool as hell." Like, and that's really what we wanted. And yeah, I think it's 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 also interesting for people in the tech industry to to turn it around and, and look at themselves and say, "Yeah, th this is absurd." <laughs> okay, great. Now now that we understand that. <laughs> How do we go for it? You know, <laughs> yeah. I think that it's a very important idea. It's a very interesting way to look at it. And so I got a couple of, of questions that I always have to ask. What would be your advice, either individually or, or collectively, to either your younger selves or just in general to people out there, maybe who are younger than you, who are going through some other chapter that you've already passed through? I mean, I would advise to myself to have less fear of being bad at something and to find more enjoyment in the process of getting better. Like I taught myself guitar in high school and I wasn't really good at it. And my friends and bands would tell me I sucked and they would just have me do other things. And then like later in college, you know, I didn't take any of the music classes at school because I was like, well, I suck at music anyways, but I loved playing music. So I'd, you know, hide in my room and play guitar and like, I bought an electric guitar and I got good at that, but like I just didn't tell anybody and I never wanted to play with anybody. And then like kind of around the time last year's Dotacomp happened, I started jamming with people and just saying like, I think because I saw myself getting better at a bunch of other things, I was like, maybe I can actually get good at music. And like now I play in a band regularly and like I wish when I was younger in high school, instead of just being like, well, I suck and just like accepting it, I should have just not like feared dedicating time to it and also enjoyed getting better at something. What's this new band's name? Uh, Rad Dad. I love it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Joey, what, what's your advice? I mean, I think going, going off of that a little bit, you know, I think right now we're finding a lot of delight in, in being absurd and in and, and, and being weird and being dumb and being bad. And I think that, you know, as, especially as someone, as someone who got, like, picked on a lot as a kid, it's like, it's okay. In fact, it's great to be weird, right? There's... I, as a kid, I had tried to conform a lot, and, and I, I, I tried to, I think, shed some of the things that made me an individual. And looking back on it now, I realize how much, you know, how much time I've lost doing that, right? And how much, how, how you know, I think about, like, you know, if, if I had run with some, some weird instincts or weird hobbies that I had, you know, as, as a kid, that you know, I, could, I could be doing a lot of that, a lot more of that stuff now. And so... I think being being weird and having these weird we, having weird hobbies and having the the guts to say yeah so what you know I like this thing fine deal with it and and sticking to that is is like ultimately what what makes life interesting so I would just say don't be so afraid of, of you know what the what the world has to say just you know do your thing and, and be weird and, and you know and, and just rock it you know that's perfect. My final question, if you had to title your autobiography, what would the title be? I know Joey's title. <laughs> I don't know my title. Do you guys <laughs> what, what? do each other's titles? <laughs> it would what? be Joey Yang, do the weird thing first. That's not, that's not bad. <laughs> I think mine would just Both be, those things are true. 
my hashtag feelings. I was that was gonna be close to what I was gonna do for you too. I I I think I like both of them. <laughs> yeah. Joe Yang, do the weird thing first. And Siggy, my hashtag feelings. Thank yeah. you guys so much for being on and yeah, sharing your insight, experience, journey, and approach to learning and creating technology and art in a way that's highly approachable and really healthy and fun, which I think the world, maybe especially the Bay Area, needs a dose of. Dada Conf is May 6th, 7th, and 8th yep. at NIMBY in Oakland. Mm -hmm. Yep. Joey Yang, Siggy Bilstein, and myself, Bill Ehrlich, will all be there, as well as a bunch of other uh, people from the Bay Area who are interested in having a good time and making something really dumb. Yes, the dumber yeah. the better. Dataconf.com, point your internet device towards it. D-A-D-A-Conf.com. Not dadconf. That's different. Dadconf is nice to go. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. This is Bill Ehrlich. Is now a good time. Now I hear you get thumped, ooh, the thunk sitting drunk on